Are we good? Okay, let's rock. This is Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus, hopefully with closer and closer to 2020 spiritual vision. That's We see Jesus increment 59 already. And we will open with a word of prayer. We'll begin this message with a word of prayer. Father, we are always dependent upon you, and there's never a moment where we are not commanded to trust in you, and so we do even now. We pray that the just and mysterious law of the cross, whereby you convert the evils of our times into the supreme good, will be operational in our time. It will be operational through this message. And so I entrust my spirit to you and the spirits of all those who will hear this message today to you and to the end that through the word we receive, we will be allowed to manifest the life of Jesus in our own mortal bodies. We ask this and we commit ourselves to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Amen. Reality isn't just logical. It is that because it's based in what the scripture calls the logos. But it's not just logical. Reality is soteriological. It's about the saving reality of God. Reality is Jesus and his name, a divine and human name that is higher than angels, means salvation. We might say that Jesus is God caught in the act of the salvation of all of humanity. Jesus is Yahweh having assumed a human nature and being caught in the act of salvation. We are in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 16 and I have this present working translation. For he has surely not assumed the nature of angels, but he took hold of the seed of Abraham. I've gone with this translation of Hebrews 2.16 because it seems to make the most sense within the flow of the discourse. It also flows quite well with the verses immediately following, which we're also considering. And they read like this in 2.17 and 18. For the same reason, now that goes back to verse 10, the same reason that it was fitting that he be made perfect through suffering, he was bound to become like his siblings, his brothers and sisters in every way, except for sin, as we will note, and as the writer notes in Hebrews 4.15, in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered and was tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. Now, when I translated 2.16 a couple of increments ago, I added, with the intention 
of the universal salvation. So it would be, for he has surely not assumed the nature of angels, but he took hold or assumed the nature of the seed of Abraham or the seed of Abraham with the intention of a universal salvation. I said that to give the sense. That's not a part of the translation, but we are called as expositors of the word and exegetes and communicators along with the mandate in Nehemiah 8.8 to give the sense of the scripture. That's what I was doing, and that's what I have to do. But this is not part of the translation, that is, with the intention of a universal salvation. Not part of the translation, but I insist that it is indeed a giving of the sense of what is being said given that the Son assumed a human nature in order to experience death for everyone, Hebrews 2.9, and to make propitiation, we could even say propitiation slash expiation because there's a slight difference between those two terms and they need to be both together to give the definition of what he has done on the cross, but to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In Hebrews 2.17. Now the people there is the people of the whole world in all of its times. As 1 John 2.1-2 says in another place. And as 1 John 4.9-10 says that we may live through him. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins that we may live through him. So we can compare this element of propitiation in Hebrews 2.17 with 1 John 4, 9, and 10, and that with Romans 5.18, in which Jesus' one righteous act results in life and justification for all. And 1 Corinthians 15.22, in which the Scripture plainly says... In Christ, all will be made alive. So again, with the intention of a universal salvation is not part of the translation of Hebrews 2.16, but it is certainly part of the overall sense of God's intention. So to see the divine intention as being toward a universal salvation is both intelligent and reasonable. It is, in reality, to see Jesus. In fact, it would be irresponsible and maybe even unloving to disregard this universally saving intention of God our Savior as it is disclosed in Scripture. And it would be unloving not to proclaim Jesus in his universally saving significance once we've seen him in that light. Once we've seen him in this light, we can't hide that light under a bushel basket. And I've seen him in the light of his universally saving significance. So I'm not going to shrink away from preaching him that way. In 1 Timothy 2.4, the intentionality of God. We're sort of forced to do an intentionality analysis of God in the scriptures. And the intentionality of God in 1 Timothy 2, 4. 
In fact, 2, 3, and 4 says that the intentionality of God our Savior is clearly analyzed. God our Savior wills all to be saved. And that will isn't just a wish. And if it is a wish, it's an efficacious wish, one which is brought to fruition and will be fulfilled. Isaiah 46.10 speaks about that. I will do all my will, God says. So it's not just a wish or a desire. God's intention is that all would be saved. In Titus 2.11, the scripture says, the grace of God has appeared. Then there should be a colon in the English language and then salvation for all of humanity. In Titus 3, 4, and 5, it says, When the beneficence and philanthropy of God our Savior appeared, he saved us according to his mercy. In 2 Timothy 2, 11, the word declares, If we died with him, and we did, it's a fulfilled condition there of that word if, we will also live with him. If we died with him, we will also live with him. Now, when this is coupled with 2 Corinthians 5.14, we get the insight. Sometimes insight is merely the collision of two verses in the scripture or the conflation of two. For the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, if one died for all, then all died. Now, when that collides with... If we died with him, we shall live with him. Then the insight that blazes forth from these two verses in conflation is we all died with him and we will all live together with him. So when you've been given the insight of an all-saving Savior and when that upper blade insight has been copiously documented with lower blade data, from the scriptures of truth in Daniel 10.21, then it's impossible to read and study, and I found this to be my experience, it's impossible to read and study any scripture in the light of that insight. Rather, it's impossible not to read the scripture apart from that light of that insight. And even that includes the scriptures that seem to reveal an uncertainty. They seem to reveal an uncertainty about the salvation of some. I still read that in the light of the salvation of all. God, our Savior, is a descriptor, or we could even say a title, that aptly belongs to the triune eternal being called God. The triune God is God, our Savior. Ho Theos, God. The title, or we could say descriptor, the founder of salvation in Hebrews 2.10, belongs uniquely to Jesus, the Son, who is also the founder and completer of faith in Hebrews 12.2. Now, all of this is going towards an exegesis or an exposition and exposing of the meaning of Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. I'm just doing it in a kind of a different way than is usually done. The word faith in Hebrews 12, 2 and throughout Hebrews 11 has the triple significance 
of the faith, fidelity, and trustful faithfulness that arises from having the reality of hope for things and the proof of unseen realities in one's heart. I'll say that again. The word faith in Hebrews 12.2 and as it's used throughout Hebrews 11 has the triple significance of faith, fidelity, and trustful faithfulness that arises from having the reality of hoped-for things and the proof of unseen realities in one's heart. It is the heart where man believes. Jesus' faithful obedience is responsible for the justification of all of humanity. Jesus' faith, faithfulness, and fidelity is responsible for the justification of all of humanity. And to our significant advantage, his faithfulness continues, even as I speak, his faithfulness continues as our merciful and faithful archpriest. See? That's Hebrews 2.17. Now, as I've said before about the insight of Jesus' universally saving significance, however, I don't think it's wise to simply take that insight for granted to the degree that certain warnings in the Scripture lose their efficacy, their punch. In other words... We don't just say, well, Jesus saves all, so I don't have to pay attention to any of the exhortations or the incentive-imparting passages or even the rebukes and the reproofs of the Word. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have to pay attention. There's an even more helpful statement of universal human salvation that I consider to have considerable interpretive value for Hebrews. See, I'm weaving back and forth universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, but efficacious exhortation. Both are interweaved in the scripture. In 1 Timothy 4.10, I think 1 Timothy 4.10 has, again, considerable interpretive value for Hebrews as a whole, for the whole discourse of Hebrews. There it is said that God is said to be the Savior of everyone, especially of those who believe. Now, please notice that phrase. That's more significant than you can know. God is said to be the Savior of everyone, especially of those who believe. And that can also mean those who are faithful. Now, the Greek says soter panton anthropon malista piston. Again, savior of all humankind. But then it says malista or malista, M-A-L-I-S-T-A. Malista. It's kind of like It sounds sort of like, in my mind, the word militia, only it's malista. We aren't a militia, but we are a malista. We are those who believe. 
Malista. Pistone, it says. Malista Pistone. He is especially the savior of a group called Malista Malista Pistone. Malista Pistone. Especially those who are faithful. Now, so the Greek says, Soter panton anthropon malista piston. So it's Hebrews, the whole discourse we call Hebrews, which is kind of a homily within an epistle, addresses this group of people, the malista piston. Especially given that the PT is exhorting his readers to perseverance in faith and in faithfulness. Just what that malista, not militia, but let's call ourselves a malista, not a militia. Just what that malista consists of in the eschatological sense, that is, where we're going, what our destiny is, is not entirely clear. Though it has to do with, quote, receiving what was promised after having done the will of God, Hebrews 10.36. Don't throw away your confidence because it carries with it a great reward. But you have need of perseverance so that having done the will of God, you might receive what was promised. That's addressed to not everyone, but to the especially those who have faith or especially those who are of faithfulness or are faithful. Doing the will of God, whose will is to save all of humanity, has to do with perseverance in faithfulness. The perseverance in faithfulness in those whom God has gifted with faith. If you've been gifted with faith, listen carefully. If you have been gifted with faith, yours is not to wonder why others have not been gifted with faith. Yours is to get with the consistent, accurate teaching of the word and to go on to what the scripture calls completion. Hebrews 6.1 We are partakers of a heavenly calling. That's where we're going, see, Hebrews 3.1. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. That's a calling that issues from heaven and beckons toward heaven. That's what the man said in Hebrews 3.1. There, the PT agrees with Paul, as he does in so many places. He agrees with Paul, who spoke with singularly urgent urgency, of, quote, pressing on to the mark of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's like the heavenly calling, an upward calling. Philippians 3.14. Paul says, this one thing I do, and uh, one thing, but one thing. In fact, he spoke of doing so as the one thing he does in his life. Philippians 3.13. I would ask you, is this, and I would ask myself, is this the one thing for you? Is this the one thing for me? 
Or is, is it just an additional thing you do among a flurry of other more pressing activities and responsibilities? I'm of the belief that we don't really fulfill our other pressing responsibilities and activities without fulfilling this one first and foremost. All of Hebrews 11 has to do with the malista piston. Malista piston. The malista piston crowd, especially those who believe crowd from past epochs of history. The last verse of that chapter contains the curious disclosure that these faith heroes, as they're often called, are not completed, there's that theme again of completion or perfection, or perfected without us. It seems that there is quite a crowd, or a cloud, as Hebrews puts it, of faithful heroes, witnesses, that has yet to be completed and yet to be commended and rewarded in the eschatological future. But that famous faith chapter, as it's called, isn't really over. In fact, it doesn't really reach a climax until Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It doesn't stop at 1140. Its train of thought drives forcefully forward into chapter 12 where we, the readers and hearers, are urged to look away from everyone and everything else. That's a real challenge in these days of demanding social media and so many weird and wild things going on in the world today in the news media. We are called to look away from everyone and everything else and to fix our eyes on Tespistios Archegon Kai Teleotain Yesun, which is the founder and completer of faith. That's faith, faithfulness, and fidelity. The exemplar of faithfulness par excellence. Jesus. We see Jesus finds its declaration first in Hebrews 2.9 and its exhortation in Hebrews 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the one whom we see crowned with glory and honor. In faithful perseverance, Jesus, who was holy, free from evil and different from sinners, as we know from Hebrews 7.26, endured the hostility of sinners against himself, which ultimately led to his crucifixion, which he also endured, thinking very little of the shame that it entailed. Now, if you think a lot about the shame that people are shaming you with today, you probably won't do anything of any note in this life. You probably won't advance in faith because you're afraid of being shamed. Well, instead, why don't you despise the shame? That's what Jesus did. That's what I should do. But he's now exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. You can't get any higher than that. Not even Jim Morrison, who said, girl, we could not get much higher 
See, he didn't know how high Jesus got. And that's in the exaltation of God to his own right hand in the heavens. Oh, the people, the things that people sacrifice to get high in other ways. The things you sacrifice. The things we sacrifice. We see Jesus there in the highest height of all, crowned with glory and honor, and he is our greatest motivation. As our great archpriest, he is also our constant motivator through the Holy Spirit, who's called the energizer or the comforter or the encourager, the parakletos. And it's very important that we pay attention to the fact that Jesus is a merciful and what? Faithful archpriest. We may be complete in Christ in one sense, and we should be assured of our place in him. We may be complete in Christ, who is the head of principalities and powers, and we are, Colossians 2.10, you should know that. But we have not yet persevered in faith and fidelity to the kind of completion that Hebrews is speaking about. There is a race. There is a contest. There's also a goal and a prize. So we press on. But we may also take heart because our faithfulness is a mimesis. Now, M-I-M E-S-I-S, mimesis, from a Greek word, doesn't just mean imitation, like monkey see, monkey do imitation. Mimesis of the faith and fidelity and trustful faithfulness of Jesus Christ is an imitation by participation. We actually have the privilege of participating in Jesus' own Faith, faithfulness, and fidelity. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The saving will of God our Father, the saving will of God. Remember, as reality is soteriological, so is God's will. God's will is not primarily ethical as much as it is soteriological. The saving will of God, we'll call it. The saving will of God our Father is that we be, quote, delivered from this present evil age. Delivered from this present evil age. It doesn't say delivered from hell. It says that we be delivered from this present evil age in Galatians 1.4. His will that all human beings be saved includes his intention that we be delivered from this present evilly affected aeon or age. And so we're called not so much to be, listen, this is a very important distinction. And I made it while I was, or I understood it and came to understand it while I was apart from you the last time and where pastors Messick and Brown took over and did such a marvelous job. This is when I discovered that we are not called, and especially through Hebrews, we are not called to be what people call countercultural. 
because that can denote being of another culture which may be just as corrupt or systemically evil as the one which you claim to be against. Countercultural applies today, for example, to Marxist and anarchist organizations that have no regard for any lives, any property, or any values whatsoever, but only for their own ideological agenda from which they hope to somehow profit. How, I don't know. We certainly do not aim to be countercultural in their infantile and nihilistic style or by joining such movements. Shame on Christians who do. And pastors, double shame. You think you're due double honor? You're due double shame. Often countercultural movements, listen carefully to this, please, often so-called countercultural movements are merely incidences of Satan's house being divided against itself. It would be better to say that we are called to be counter this aonic. Now, let me say what I mean and mean what I say. Counter hyphen this, T-H-I-S hyphen, aonic, A-I-O-N-I-C. Counter this evil age is what it is. It's not a culture. It's an age that we are to run counter or against the grain of. And that's a much better way to think of our lives in faith, our walk by faith in 2 Corinthians 5.7, our living by faith in Romans 1.17. And it's biblical. It seems that the commitments of some theologians and of a lot of clergymen to be countercultural are in fact errors that can lead them and their followers away from what is really counter this present evil age. They often are simply countering what they perceive to be evil with evil, which is the very essence of the way this age acts, returning evil for evil. Don't return evil for evil. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome the evil with divine good. The ultimate good is what Romans, 11, Romans 12, 21 teaches. And that takes power from another age. That takes power from the age to come. That takes the Holy Spirit's power. That takes a life that runs not counter to any given culture, but counter. You see, people that think that they're supposed to be counter-cultural think that it's Christian not to dress the way other people dress, and that can be true in terms of modesty, but in terms of they have to use no buttons, they can't use buttons, they have to wear funny straw hats and wear certain kinds of beards with the corners not cut off, and they think that that's being counter-cultural, and all that's doing is falling into place with the rest of the world that's trying to be non-conformist. It's like the hippie days back in the 60s when I remember all of my friends at the University of Vermont wanted to be nonconformists, so they all dressed alike, had the same hair or, la or length of hair, the same long hair, the same farmer jeans, and the same copy of the Greening of America in their back pockets. Same today. It's the same today, only today instead of burning bras, they're burning towns and cities. 
And it's the same infantile ideology and manipulation, you see. It's crazy. Now, we're not countercultural. We're counter this age altogether, this evil age altogether. Now, it's true that the so-called dominant culture, and that's another term people like to use, and it's not wrong, but the so-called dominant culture in the time of the writing of the New Testament was an ethos determined by a, a collusion of SPQR, Sonatus Populusque Romanus, that's the Roman Empire with its values, and apostate Jerusalem, the joining together of the beast and the whore, in other words, and that was the dominant culture or the spirit of the age, it's true. But even that culture was dominated by a this aeonic evil, which is not escaped by being merely resistant to the dominant culture. You're not fulfilling the will of God, in other words, by merely being resistant to the dominant culture, to, the, to a dominant political party, or to any political party. This aeonic evil is not escaped by being merely resistant to a dominant cult. In other words, you can be countercultural and still dominated by this age, this evil age. I hope you're getting the point, and I hope I'm expressing it. It's one of those things where you have an insight, but to see it and to say it are two different things. But what comes to mind is Jesus' words regarding a man or house, a house, a man, a man who can house spirits. He speaks of a man, also a house, from which a demon is expelled and evicted, we could say. When the demon is evicted and nothing fills the vacated space, nothing fills the vacated space, seven more demons who are wandering about in desert places seek a place to squat, to be squatters. And they come in and the state of that house or that man is far worse than it was with only one demon. Now, Jesus assessed the generation into which he was speaking as being in that very state. Matthew 12, 43 to 45. Now, one time, and I used to like to read the books my father read, and my father read a book by Robert Ruark called Something of Value. The book was quite unusual. It was about the Mau Mau Revolution in Africa in the, I guess it was the mid-20th century. And it was a very interesting book, and I liked it, and I like Robert Ruark anyways, but the, that's R-U-A-R-K, and they made a movie of it starring, I think, Rock Hudson and Sidney Poitier, both great actors, but the movie wasn't that good. In any case, the Kikuyu, Kikuyu tribe, that's K-I-K-U-Y-U, K-I-K-U-Y-U. That was the tribe in Kenya at the time. And they have a proverb that speaks to this. And the book, Something of Value, comes from this proverb. And the Kikuyu proverb says this, quote, If a man does away with his traditional way of living and throws away his good customs, 
he had better first make certain that he has something of value to replace them. Well, if we play with this proverb a little bit and work it into our subject, God has redeemed us from an empty and traditional way of living. It's been handed down to us from our forefathers since Adam. It's a way of living called the old man, dominating our decisions and our actions. God has redeemed us from an empty traditional way of living, but he didn't do that without first replacing it with something of value. He has given us something of inestimable value, a conscience purified from dead works or from having to live in a vain traditional way and the Holy Spirit is our gift through whom we serve the living God inestimably valuable God redeemed us not with corruptible things like silver and gold but with inestimably valuable blood the blood of Christ which is like that of a lamb without blemish and that's where we can compare first Peter 1 18 and 19 with Hebrews 9 12 to 14 God has indeed given us something of value to replace the traditional way of living that we lived before while we were being cast in the mold of the present evil age. It's not like we're just trying never to be like this world. It's like we're given an otherworldly life to live, which runs counter to this world, this age. And mostly that has the effect of being gracious and demonstrating unconditional love rather than exchanging evil for evil, insult for insult, slap for slap, etc., etc. That our lives are to be counter this aeonic. And I'll just coin this little phrase for lack of a better descriptive. Be counter hyphen this hyphen aeonic. Counter this aeonic. To be counter this aeonic is signified by a crucial exhortation given by the Apostle Paul, and he says it came through the grace and authority given to him by God. And it's Romans 12, 1 through 3, and I've given a kind of expanded translation of this from when we did reading Romans with the light on under the general term, better call Paul. Here it is, Romans 12, 1 to 3. So by the mercies of God, please notice, mercies in connection with our merciful high priest i urge you brothers and sisters to present your bodies to god as a living sacrifice sanctified and acceptable to god this is your primary reasonable act of priestly worship don't be conformed to this evil transient age is what it says doesn't say world it says age be counter aeonic, in other words. Don't be conformed to this. And I, and I inserted in brackets evil and transient because both of those describe this age from Galatians 1.4, for example. Don't be conformed to this evil age by giving evil for evil. That's a context. That's, again, the sense. And it comes from Hebrews 12, 9, or rather Romans 12.19 to 21. The other end of the chapter describes what it means to be this of this age, it exchange, you exchange evil for evil. Instead, 
12 to B, be transformed by the making new of your way of thinking, resulting in the affirmation of the good, the well-pleasing, and the complete, there's the term completion again, will of God. There's will of God. 4, verse 3, through the apostolic grace and authority that was given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Do you know if you're a pastor, you're going to be trained in that every single day? You might do three or four messages and you might think they're really something. And those messages mean that you must be really something when you're really nothing. Nothing. I am nothing. And so, as Paul said about Apollos and Peter and Paul himself, we're nothing. We're nothing. If any man thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself, and sooner or later he's going to be preaching messages that are really something, all right. They're heretical. So we're constantly going through what some, some of the old-timers might call and some new-timers might call brokenness, breaking us of thinking we're something when we're not. Uh, he constantly has us in a process of humbling so that we can continually to serve him, continue to serve him effectively. And nobody thinks a lot of himself and serves God effectively. Nobody does. You're serving somebody else. So, I say to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Okay, let's use the other gender. Not to think of herself more highly than she ought to think. Instead, it is necessary, he says, to think reasonably as each one has been assigned faithfulness. That's Notice how I translate that. Each one has been assigned Faithfulness. It says faith, but it means you've been assigned faithfulness, and so have I. All of us have. And we, are, we have been assigned Christ's faithfulness as the measure and standard of judgment. So I don't even judge somebody who doesn't have faith as they don't have faith. Therefore, I damn them. I condemn them. No. Someone who doesn't have faith, I judge on the basis of Christ's faithfulness, who was faithful for them. Well, that can go a long way. But we, I want to consider this now. Let's consider Romans 12, 1 to 3 in conflation with or in a collision that conflates with the exhortation or the proclamation of Galatians 1, 4, and 5. We have an exhortation, Romans 12, 1 to 3. We have proclamation in Galatians 1, 3 to 5, which says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil aeon or age according to the will of God, our Father. Lots of compatibilities here. Christ gives himself for our sins in order to deliver us from the evil age. This is according to the will of God, our Father, whose will is also that everyone would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Our Father, to whom we pray, deliver us from evil. 
answers that petition by giving his son, who in turn gave himself for our sins, in order to what? Deliver us from evil. To deliver us from this present evil age. This is in according, accordance with or in agreement with God's will, which we ask of the Father to be done on earth. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This phrase in Galatians 1.5, according to God our Father's will, is congruent with God's complete will in Romans 12.2. In both cases, God's will is to distinguish us, people of faith, from the mold of this evil age. In Galatians 1, 3 to 5, Paul emphasizes Christ's self-sacrifice to accomplish this. I'll say that again. In Galatians 1, 3 to 5, Paul emphasizes Christ's self-sacrifice to accomplish this. And in Romans 12, 1 to 2, in the exhortation, he accentuates our act of self-presentation as a living sacrifice with a view to the accomplishment of the goal of no longer being conformed to this age. It doesn't say let's run counter to the culture. It says let's run counter to this evil age altogether. That requires an altogether different kind of supernatural transformation by grace. So notice that it says this age or this eon and not any given dominant culture, so-called. The renewal of our minds that results in our transformation is in tune with our deliverance from this evil age. Our practical rescue from this evil age cannot be accomplished without the self-sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ who was both the sin offering and the offerer, and neither can it take place without the free will self-offering of our own body to God as a living sacrifice. This act on our part is called reasonable, reasonable worship. Why reasonable? Because it's done in mimesis of Jesus offering of his own body to God as a living sacrifice, which we find in Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. Our living sacrifice, our living sacrifice, and our body there is a synecdoche for our whole being. It's a part for the whole. Our body, our living sacrifice, the whole of us, as the sanctified, is accomplished in mimesis of the living sacrifice of the sanctifier with whom we are one entity and have one Father. Again, the intended result of self-sacrifice of Christ and the living sacrifice of our being is a life and a livingness that is counter this evil age and not just counter any given human culture. Although it's pretty good to be counter the cancel culture 
and many aspects of our of course we're going to be running counter to the dominant aspects of much of what we have today around us as something that is culture or the civilization or the society around us. Some societal norms and standards, however, we will not forsake or do away with. They are part of a divinely established means of order. You don't burn that down, fool. Now, let's go over this again. Our rescue out of this present evilly affected eon Eon, A-E-O-N, is simply a synonym for age. Our rescue out of this present evilly affected aeon is according to the will of God our Father. I'm repeating now. This is done in answer to our prayer to our Father, which was really uttered by Jesus. Our Father in heaven, whom we petition that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that he would deliver us from evil. So today's teaching is in harmony with what Pastor Craig Brown has been teaching us for some 12 hours, and very ably so, regarding the Lord's Prayer. Hmm. The unplugging of our thinking and of our intentionality from the current of this current age and plugging into the obediential intentionality of the mind of Christ is ordered to this end, that is, of being counter this age. And it proves or actualizes the will of God, which is said to be good and acceptable and complete in God's view, in Romans 12.1. This in turn coheres with the project underway in Hebrews, by which God's people are called to go on to completion. This we will do if God permits. And he won't permit if you're dull of hearing. And that's what we're going to be getting to in the chapters of 5 and 6, really 3 through 6. Much of what is called countercultural today is really has nothing of value to replace the traditions it attempts to destroy. Much of what is counter-cultural today is nihilistic, meaning that it holds nothing to be of value. It has the vain imaginings of John Lennon's imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no Religion, there's no God, there's no nothing, there's just a brotherhood of man. You see, that's an impossible utopia. It's a nihilistic song. It holds nothing really to be of value. Except for a vain hope in a humanistic utopia. It's not going to happen. At the opposite extreme of what is nihilism... At the opposite of extreme, it says, we are partakers of a heavenly calling. That's what the PT says in 3.1 of Hebrews. That involves not a counter-culture zone, but a heavenly citizenship right here on earth. It focuses on values that are eternal in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, compared with Hebrews 8.2, 9.11, and 11.1. 1. 
it values unseen everlasting realities over evanescent things that are merely seen. The will of God our Father and our Savior, and this is the final thrust of today's message, so I hope you'll stay with me because this is where it's going to move into the most important territory so far. The will of God our Father and our Savior is that all people be saved or rescued out of this present evilly affected aeon and come to the knowledge of the truth, says 1 Timothy 2.4. Now that's a knowledge which in fact and in essence is, and these are terms I'm just simply introducing without you having to understand them, for they are just the notes of a symphony that will hit a crescendo later on in our study. Uh, This knowledge is in fact and in essence what is called the cruciform spirituality, that is supremely exemplified and embodied in Jesus. I'll say that again. It is the cruciform spirituality that is supremely exemplified and embodied in Jesus. In other words, his life was in the shape of a cross long before he was nailed to one. Now, it is this cruciform, C-R-U-C-I-F-O-R-M, this cruciform life and livingness that God our Father wills to be manifested in our mortal bodies. The life of Jesus manifested, that is manifested to be seen, so others see Jesus in our mortal bodies, 2 Corinthians 4.11. This is only possible through us adopting a cruciform spirituality. Because of this, our great salvation has an even now experience and expression as well as an eschatological consummation for which we wait. God the Father's will is our deliverance out of this harmful eon and away from its tyrannical pressure to mold its subjects after its intentions and into the form of its ideas and ideologies That which the Apostle Paul calls the old man is a result of that molding by this age. God our Father and the Father of our Lord Jesus, who has spoken with decisive finality in a son in these last days, that God is pleased when we are saved, delivered, and then preserved from evil, from the evil one. Matthew 6.13, Ephesians 6.13, and that means from our doing of evil or departing from him with an evil heart of unbelief in Hebrews 3.12. We are delivered from the evil one who once held dominion in the realm of death in Hebrews 2.14. God's pleased by that. Now, our practical sanctification pleases God. Now, I hope you get this too because these are thoughts and truths that are going to have profound impact on your life, my life too. Our practical sanctification pleases God, not because it reveals our ethical alignment to his will, but because it is in accord with his soteriological or saving will for us. 
his efficacious saving wishes for us. Efficacious wishes come true. Our God is the God of salvation and to him belong the ways out of death, says Psalm 68.20, LXX 67.21. God's will for us is entirely soteriological and therefore merciful, for he saves us by his mercy, according to his mercy. His mercy is salvific, saving in its effect, efficaciously saving, and it endures forever. 26 times we're told this in Psalm 136. Jesus has obtained an everlasting redemption through his obedience to the extent of death and therefore by his own blood. Dia de tu idiu haimatos. Through his own blood. Hebrews 9.12, Hebrews 13.12. God's will is salvific. S-A-L-V-I-F-I-C. Not only for some, but for all of humanity and even for all of creation. The universe itself is presently in a state of entropy, but only during the present evilly affected age. The present temporal arrangement of things, therefore, and don't be surprised at this, is askew and distorted. It is from this evilly affected aeon that we are being delivered, being delivered. It's a process and counter to which we live and move and have our being. The age to come involves values that are in accord with God's will and never counter to God's will. The age to come has come in the form of a cruciform livingness. Listen carefully to that statement, please. The age to come has come in the form of a cruciform livingness, informed, Hebrews 3, 7 and 4, 7, and empowered, Galatians 5, 16, by the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10, 29, and the spirit of truth, same person, John 14, 16 and 17, who is petitioned by the Son to the Father, to be with us always and in us forever. John 14, 16 and 17. Now speaking of God as the God of our salvation as we move to a close, in today's message anyways, speaking of God as the God of our salvation, God's idea of justice is salvific and not punitive. God's judgment on system, systemically sinful humanity, God's judgment on systemically sinful humanity is justification. That's his judgment. The justification of the ungodly in Romans 4, 5 through the death of his son, which was for the ungodly in Romans 5, 6. Justification comes not through each man's faith. Listen to that. Justification comes not through each human being's faith, fidelity, or allegiance, as the new trend says, but through the faith, fidelity, and faithfulness of Jesus Christ, one Jesus Christ, 
who offered himself once and for all at the juncture and consummation of the ages and who now, right now, is our merciful and faithful archpriest. Hebrews 2.17 again, for the same reason. He was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For we, for since he himself has suffered and was tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. So, listen, to have a deep and abiding faith is to have Jesus own faith, fidelity, and trusting faithfulness. It is to have Jesus. The coming of faith is the coming of Jesus, says Galatians 3.23 and 3.25. The advent of Jesus Christ, we call it, is the advent of faith, fidelity, and faithfulness into this age. It's what I call the triple F, FFF. Faith, fidelity, and faithfulness that saves. Jesus, faith, fidelity, and faithfulness. The name Jesus equals salvation. Yahweh saves. Jesus is God caught in the act of saving everybody. The salvation is the very essential act of Yahweh who is love. Salvation is the very act of Yahweh, who is love. It is what God spoke in a son in these last days. It is the act of God who is love in the son of his love. Jesus breathes the spirit into us and he bequeaths his faith, faithfulness, and fidelity to us. So it becomes the air that we breathe and the life that we live. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God by trying to be countercultural or by trying to be justified by something I do in the energy of my humanity without God. And then you call it Christian or Christian ethics. Well, we imitate Jesus' faithfulness, not by mimicry, but by participation in it. We have the spirit of faith, says Second Corinthians 4.13. We believe and then we speak. We speak that which we know and which we have been fully convinced of. And that's what I'm teaching today, that which I know that which I've been fully convinced of. I speak what I believe. Jesus gives this faith to us, to the church, to those who are his house, as we're going to learn in the next chapter. Having been crucified with him, now we live by and in the sphere of his faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Son of God. We were crucified with him, which means our life after crucifixion is a cruciform spirituality. We live by his faithfulness rather than frustrating the grace of God, for example, by trying to be countercultural. 
or by attempting to justify ourselves before a shaming, narcissistic culture. We will run counter to this culture, but only its evil parts, and we'll only do that by running counter to the evil age, and that's only by the power and grace of God. We despise the shame that's poured out on us by a cancel culture. By despising the shame, it means we don't care about it. We don't think much of it. That means we think very little of the shame. Who cares if somebody shames you? It does not make us fear or cower or fear guilt or feel guilt so that we have to genuflect to somebody other than the Lord Jesus Christ because we're cowed into doing it. Now, we don't fear or cower or feel guilt so that we can be manipulated into submission and molded into the moldy mold of someone else who wants to heap guilt on us so that they can dominate us. Only by hearing the voice of the Spirit day to day will we be able to represent, listen carefully, only by hearing the voice of the Spirit day by day will we represent the cruciform spirituality that's embodied and supremely exemplified in Jesus. And by doing so, we will demonstrate or prove, if you will, as Romans puts it, that we are his house and his companions. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. May we make the most of it, and may the truths that were taught through stammering lips today be brought home by the spirit of grace and the spirit of truth, and may they result in efficacious Christian living, whereby we run counter to this evil age, and whereby we manifest in our mortal bodies, or you manifest in our mortal bodies, the life of Jesus, so others can see him. We ask these things and give you thanks for this time together. In his name, amen.